0: If you would, please uh, grab a copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, the text was read for us by Miss Stephanie. Uh, verses 46 through 55 is what we'll be looking at. And I just want to ask a couple of questions. I mean, the way God has designed humanity, it's made up of relationships made up of relationships and there's there's several questions i could pose before us this morning and asking how's your relationship with your spouse your children your coworkers your neighbors it's good to ask these questions from time to time but i want to ask how is your relationship with christ Is your fellowship with him sweet? Or is your devotion waning? Do you need a recalibration of your heart this morning? I think that we could all say that we long to be closer to the Lord. We desire a closer intimacy with the Lord. I think this passage directs us to that. And can help us this morning. Our text comes from J.C. Riles, The Coming of the King. It's our Advent devotional that we've been encouraging families to utilize this month. Uh, Brother Rick started our Advent series by introducing a question and asking really what should we do between the two Advents. We find ourselves between Christ's first coming and we're anticipating and hoping his second. And really, the next two sermons that came from that look to Christ's second coming. And really, simply put, we work. We have a work to do as the children of God, as we anticipate Christ's coming. This week's and the next, we'll look to his first coming. And and really, what we see from that today, in answering that question, what should we do? We worship. We worship. Uh, I've entitled this message, The Song of Mary. Not a very uh, crafty or new title, but The Song of Mary. And there's really four things that I want us to see from the text. The first, the praise of Mary. We'll look at that in verses 46 through 47. The praise of Mary, which is the foundation for this song. And then the next three... Would be her source for her praise as she looks at three things the personal favor of God, verses 48 through 49, the power of God, verses 50 through 53, and then lastly, the promises of God, verses 54 through 55. So the praise of Mary, the personal favor of God, the power of God, the promises of God. As you read this song, it's very clear that this young lady was familiar with her Bible. Some have said that it echoes that of Psalm 103, Psalm 22, 98, 147. Very similar structure and even sentences such as the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So possibly the basis and the foundation for Mary's song comes from what she knew from the Word of God. So let's allow this, this song to direct us this Christmas season. Let, let's allow it to, to uh, instill in us a great desire to praise and worship God. So let's begin with the praise of Mary. The praise of Mary. If we, we want to first get our footing here, if you were to look back at chapter 1, what we've seen thus far, uh, Luke begins by the birth announcement of John the Baptist, looking at the parents of John the Baptist and that birth announcement. And then it goes into the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and announcing that she has been chosen by God to give birth to the Savior of the world. Would you turn with me or just look back with me at verses 31 through 33. Here's, here's our footing for our passage. Verses 31 and 30 through 33 says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. From this birth announcement, she'll go and visit her her relative Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And right before our passage, Elizabeth responds to Mary in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the basis. This is leading up to this song. We're not sure whether she departed at this time or how long it was between her conversation and visit with, Mary, with Elizabeth, but Mary, as she's considering these things, The response is praise and worship. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. For someone to magnify something or someone, it describes one who is praising someone in terms of their greatness. Similar words, synonyms would be praise, exalt, to glorify is what she's doing, and it, and it expresses in verses 46 and 47, it's from her soul and her spirit, it's within her. It's a genuine response coming from the heart of Mary, because as Mary contemplates and considers what has just occurred with the announcement and the news from Gabriel and the visit that she has with Elizabeth, she is taken back by the fact that God would place her in this story now. If we were to look from Genesis to Revelation, there is one big story going on, and that is the redemptive story of the Lord, of how God is calling a people to Himself. He does, makes that possible through Jesus Christ. Mary is a now another one of those characters in this story, and she plays a pivotal role in the life of Jesus. And her response is praise. Her response is gratitude and thankfulness. And, and, and it's a, an outburst of what's coming from within her. I mentioned to you First Samuel chapter 2 is, is what is often turned to and, and a cross-reference for this passage. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. She was barren. Her husband had another wife who was very fruitful and she longed to have a child plead it before the Lord for a child and God granted her that request through the mouth of Eli the prophet or the priest at the time and she would give birth to Samuel and she would dedicate Samuel to the Lord and hand him over to uh, Eli for service and her response is very similar just listen to a little bit of her prayer uh, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 it says my heart exults In the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more uh, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Very similar structure. And content. If you were to come across both women, you couldn't help but to see and listen and hear the praise that came from them because the Lord had favor upon them, blessed them, and praise was the response. Mary and Hannah both did what we as humans are called to do. They imaged for us our sole purpose, and that is to praise and glorify God. Very simple. A babe can understand this. We have one purpose in this life, and that is to praise and glorify God. Catechism, catechism, catechism question number two of our new catechism, we'll be looking at this next year. Poses the question why did God make you and all things? Why did God make you and all things? The simple answer God made me to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's the role and purpose of every single human. We are called to glorify and enjoy God forever. That's our role and purpose. So when we don't do that, we're not fulfilling our God-given role as human beings. Sin tarnishes that. Romans 3:23 for we have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin hinders us from accomplishing this this most basic and and, and, and necessary responsibility as humans. And even as the children of God, we stray from this purpose. I mean, this season can so easily, uh, we can be so easily swept into tradition and the gift-giving, and even the family gatherings, that we miss an opportunity to recalibrate our love and praise towards God. Instead, our culture has established before us what is worthy of worship and praise, power, image, possessions. But we are called to give praise to God, so a question to ask us is how can we glorify God during this season and beyond? How can this season propel us into a new year where we give God glory daily? Mary praises God. She's in response to the Lord coming and giving this wonderful news of a Savior that is to come. That response should be in our lives. So how? I think the Puritan Thomas Watson can help us in this. In his life, he preached 176, 176 sermons on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. After his death, that was compiled into a book called The Body of Divinity. It would be his magnum opus. It would be his most prized and most familiar book. And one of the second chapters in that book, he answers how we are to glorify God. And he gives many different things, but really four things up front for which how we can guard and bring glory to God. Those four things are appreciation, adoration, affection, and subjection. We'll take each of those uh, one at a time. Appreciation first, appreciation. Now, this isn't speaking to just thanksgiving, though this is, this is the heartbeat of Mary's song here. And though we should be thankful people, what he means by appreciation is a recognition of, and admiring the attributes and character of God. He writes, To glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem his most excellent and search for diamonds in this rock only. He, he reminds us of Psalm 97, 9, which says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So, as we put our mind to the different attributes and characteristics of God, the response in our heart is recognition, thankfulness for who God is. So, as we consider the foreknowledge, supremacy, sovereignty, immutability, holiness, power, faithfulness, goodness, patience, grace, mercy, and love of God, our heart's response in praise and thankfulness, and we give glory to God. This appreciation can't be hidden from others. This appreciation is very clear as we consider the wonderful attributes of who God is. So first, appreciation, a recognition of who God is. Thinking deeply about the different characteristics of God. There are wonderful uh, works that have been published over the last couple hundred years. One is author Pink, who who walks through the attributes of God. Uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Lawson has placed a book in in putting our mind and thinking deeply about each of these. As a church family, we try to do this from time to time, whether through a retreat or other studies. Just this last year, the immutability, the unchangeableness of God. God does not change. The jealousy of God. We've looked at the faithfulness of God. There is none that compares to our God. And as we consider these things, the out, the response is praise and glorifying God. Next, he says adoration, adoration. This speaks to our worship. Psalm 29 to ascribe to the Lord, the glory do his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We're to worship God. Daily, daily, in, in a particular way at that, in a particular way. Listen to what Watson says. He says, the Lord would have Moses make the tabernacle. He quotes Exodus 25, 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. He must not leave out anything in the pattern, nor add to it. If God was so exact and curious about the place of worship, how exact will he be about the matter of his worship? Surely here everything must be according to the pattern prescribed by his word. Meaning the word regulates our worship. That is both corporate and personally corporately every morning every Sunday when we gather we purposely do what is prescribed by the word of God we pray the word of God we sing the word of God we read the word of God we hear the word of God preached from time to time we get to we have the opportunity to take of the ordinances whether Lord's Supper or seeing a baptism these are what have been given to us and regulated by Scripture. God is very jealous for His worship to be done in a particular way. Not only corporate, but personally. Our worship to God is regulated by the Word of God. In, uh, in, in the Word, we see uh, that we are called to live according to his word. In Romans chapter 12, we know that our spiritual worship is the way and manner which we live, and it is all done in accordance to the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We are called to live out our worship, and it's regulated by the Word of God, meaning we talk a particular way because the Scripture directs us in that way. We think particular thoughts because the Scripture directs us in that way. We correspond and relate to individuals in a particular way because the Scripture directs us in a particular way. So, We glorify God through our adoration, through our affection, and through our adoration and through our, thirdly, affection. Question, how can you glorify God? I can glorify God by loving God and keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. We are called to love God. Our affections towards God is a means by which we glorify God. Watson writes, he who is the chief of our happiness has the chief of our affections. Is that true for you today? Is it clear to others that God has your chief affections and love? I hope so. Lastly, we glorify God through subjection. It's our service and obedience. We show our love through doing what he commands. John 15, 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Watson wrote, though the main work of religion lies in the heart, yet our light must show, so shine that others may behold it. It is your ultimate responsibility That goes beyond. That goes beyond your spouse and your children, your your employer, your ultimate devotion and responsibility in life is to bring glory to God. That's got my attention. I'd hope that you and I we would not waste this season to fuel and propel our worship this next year. We see the praise of Mary. Next, the personal favor of God. Look with me at verses 48 and 49. If you you notice from 48 through 55, what you're going to see, a repeated phrase, he has, he has, he has. He has. She's highlighting the mighty work and deeds of the Lord. She begins with this personal favor, though, that the Lord has upon her. She says in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's acknowledging the fact that God has looked upon her. Not looked upon her in the sense that you're looking at me and I'm looking at you. No, looked upon her as recognized and, and given her and blessed her in great mercy. It it's, brings us back up to verse 28 of chapter 1. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So, the Lord has looked upon her. He has blessed her. Mary rightly sees, though, her humble estate as a servant of the Lord. Here's here's the problem before us this morning. Our Catholic friends have gone too far in this. In 1854, the Catholic Church, uh, directed by Pope Pius IX, added in their catechism this the most blessed virgin mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of of almighty god and by virtue of the merits of jesus christ savior of the human race preserved immune from all stain of original sin so once the conception happened mary was washed away from all sins. It's the teaching of the Catholic Church. They double down on this. They say, From among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son, full of grace. Mary, the most excellent fruit of redemption, from the first instant of her conception where she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. So she not only was deemed perfect. She continued to be perfect in the light and eyes of the Catholic Church. No, she is to be considered blessed because God used a humble servant to play a role in the redemptive history. That is how she's blessed. Mary saw herself as a humble servant. Her humility demonstrates that she never intended or thought that someone would praise her in such a way. Mary's become an idol for many, untouchable, with tremendous amount of heresy being spewed out amongst many in the name of Christianity towards her name. But Mary, no, she is a woman that has had the personal favor of God and electing and choosing her to bear the son who would take away the sins of God's people. But she goes on and she says, For he who is mighty has done great things. And she recognizes his holy name. His reputation, his name is holy and set apart. It's important for us to, to highlight a couple of things here. In regards to the virgin birth of Mary. There are three things that occur here three things first salvation ultimately must come from the lord this event is a miracle in itself and can only be attributed not to mary or to anyone other than the lord himself so salvation comes from the lord the virgin birth also teaches us that there can be a, a union and and there can be one who is truly God and truly man. That's the necessity of the virgin birth, so that there could be the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the virgin birth was necessary for Christ's humanity to be without inherited sin, coming through the line of Mary. But Mary is a woman that demonstrates humility, Humility is the doorway by which we enter into intimate fellowship with God. Humility is the means by which we submit to his provisions. Humility is how we recognize our lowly state and our sins. Humility is what leads us to salvation. It's the bed for a faithful praise. Is your life marked by humility? Humility. Understanding who you are and what God has called you to. Next, Mary moves on to the power of God in verses 50 through 53. Look at verse 50 with me. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So she begins by looking at the attribute of the mercy of God. Mercy is uh, God's goodness toward those in misery distress. It's also coupled with other words, such as God's grace and God's patience. But it's important to kind of separate those for a moment. The mercy of God is God holding back what we deserve. That's the mercy of God, holding back what we deserve. All of humanity, every day that someone awakes and takes a breath of air, they have received the mercy of God. That's new every single day. Every time they take in breath and have life and walk out the door, that is the mercy of God. Eternal judgment and death is the punishment for sin. We all deserve that, but each day we're given is the mercy of God. The special mercy of God is demonstrated and lavished on the people of God when he holds back his eternal punishment for all time and place that on his son, Jesus Christ. We've all, in Jesus Christ, have experienced that special mercy. Would you turn with me to Psalm 103? Psalm 103. Last year, we actually took the time for several weeks to memorize Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a very sweet psalm, and some even say it is echoed in the song of Mary. But in Psalm 103, 8-14, through 14, we really have mercy explained for us and defined for us. And it's from these that we see the outpouring of praise from the heart of Mary. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. that we are dust. Do you hear it? He does not relate to us according to our iniquities. This is all brought about in Jesus Christ perfectly. For those in Jesus Christ, he remembers our frame. He remembers we're weak. And he demonstrates mercies from generations to generation. There's not one generation that God lavishes mercy upon and neglected others from generation to generation for those that fear him, who respect him, who call upon the name of the Lord. So she she begins by looking at the power of God in him demonstrating mercy on mankind and especially to the children of God. But in verses 51 through 53, we got two groups here. We have two groups we have the first group who would be the proud, powerful, and rich. This first group, verses 51 through 53, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This first group is the proud, the powerful, And the rich. Now let's let's make a note here. This does not mean that the villain here is the powerful and rich. The key word is proud. Luke does something in his gospel. Luke highlights what's called the great reversal. The great reversal, where Jesus states, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He's highlighting that. I mean, in the humble birth of Jesus Christ, he's he's placed in a manger. He's placed in a trough where animals are fed. His welcoming party is shepherds, lowly shepherds. All throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, those that would be considered outcasts, such as the tax collectors, are elevated within the story or redeemed. Such as Zacchaeus. he's, He's demonstrating this great reversal. But that key word is the proud. It's the one that goes about and lives their life as if they don't need the Lord. It's those that will be scattered. Now listen, this life might be rewarding for some. In the sense that they have possession and power. It might be rewarding in the sense that they have these things, but eternal judgment will come. This this might not be completed in this life, but the life to come for the proud heart, the one that says, I don't need the Lord, is the one that should be fearful. The Bible's not uh, silent on the proud. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, this, it says, God opposes The proud, but gives grace to the humble. This group is the group that goes and lives their life outside of Christ. It's God demonstrating his powerful hand and sending them away or scattering them. The second group would be the humble, the lowly, and the hungry. It's these that he elevates, he lifts up, he exalts the despairing, those in need. It's those that he remembers. This does not mean that the coming of Jesus Christ eliminates the hungry and poor. And there could be spiritual implications here as well, speaking to though we might not be physically poor, we're poor as spirit. Or spiritually hungry. And he meets those need. And he demonstrates that in his powerful hand. So which group do you find yourself in this morning? Find yourself in that group? I don't need God. I have my own power and strength and capability. Maybe you wouldn't be as bold to voice that, but your life demonstrates that, how you handle yourself. Are you, yet again, a part of the humble those that realize they need the Lord. So, the praise of Mary, the personal favor of God, the power of God, and then lastly, the promises of God. The promises of God. Verses 54 and 55, Mary is recalling how God has been merciful towards the people of Israel. How he spoke to the father uh, their fathers, and especially to Abraham, and how he is fulfilling that in the life of Jesus Christ. Of course, Mary's not aware at this point of what would occur, whether she she really understood what his life would look like. She knew that salvation was coming through this man, through this God-man. She recognized that redemption would be through Jesus Christ. She recognized that Jesus was fulfilling the promises that God has already made. She was recalling the word of God, and as she recalled it, it produced praise in her. We could spend the rest of our afternoon looking at the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament prophecies, in the longing for for a a Savior and Messiah to come, but I want to highlight five of them. First, the longing for the offspring who would bruise the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who will be the one to crush the serpent? The one that represents death and judgment and sin. Who will that be? That's Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.45, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that he might receive uh, be, might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that seed. Second, the longing for the blessing of Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. Genesis 12, 2-3, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who will bring this about? Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 3, verses 25-26, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness that's Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham this promised kingdom eternal kingdom for David Lord says in Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Romans 1, 1 through 3, we read, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he it's the God the Father promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to our flesh. Toward, according to the flesh, even in the passage that we read in verses 28 and 29, uh, all the way through 33, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. How about this longing. Uh, one who is born of a virgin. Therefore, in Isaiah seven fourteen, the, the Lord Himself will give you a, si- a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty two through twenty three. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. By the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus Christ fulfilled that. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who would this be? This is Jesus Christ bearing the sins of his people. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Mary didn't understand how vast. And how complete this son that she would give birth to would complete the prophecies foretold in the Old Covenant. But he does it perfectly. As she considers the word of God, she marvels at the promises of God. Have you walked away from the word of God like that? Just marveling? at the God of the scriptures, marveling at his faithfulness to his promises. He is faithful to his promises. you walked away knowing that he is true. If he says it, it will come about. The word of God directed this woman in her praise. J.C. Rowell comments on our passage. Let us rise from our beds every morning with a deep conviction that we are debtors and that every day we have more mercies than we deserve. Let us look around us every week as we travel through the world and see whether we have not much to thank God for. If our hearts are in the right place, we shall never find any difficulty in finding an Ebenezer. It's Christmas season, though with all the wonderful things that it comes with it. Let's allow it to propel, rejuvenate our worship and praise to the Lord as we consider his faithfulness and the blessings that are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Let's allow that to be our heart of thankfulness this season.